Well, Lord, we just, we just thank you for this day. Just encouraged as the weather warms up and the snow melts and it seems like the darker days of winter are going. And Lord, that just, to me, is a reminder of, of your grace. And that, yes, that there are dark times. There are days, just like in the middle of the winter, where uh, it just doesn't seem like it's going to end. But we know that there's light around the corner. And we know that you are watching our every step and you are with us every uh, movement that we make. And so, Lord, we pray for this morning. We just pray for uh, the text that we'll read in Titus. Would you speak to our hearts through this text? And Lord, if there's anything on my heart that I want to share that you don't want me to share, would you just remove that from me right now? Would you just strike those words from this page? Lord, I pray that uh, the words today that I speak would be your words, and it would be the words that you want these people to hear. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we are looking at Titus 2 this morning, and maybe some of you saw that on the e-bulletin earlier on in the week, and you read ahead because you're good students and you wanted to uh, know what we were talking about this morning, and uh, maybe you thought that uh, this is kind of an odd text for the youth pastor to preach on. Um, and, and I hear you, right? Uh, there's a lot that is packed into Titus 2, uh, and there's a heavy, heavy emphasis on doctrine and lists of do's and lists of don'ts. And we'll walk through this chapter together, but you may be tempted to ask yourselves, uh, is your youth pastor a legalist? <laughs> right? His, his first sermon officially as a pastor on staff, and he wants to give us a laundry list of proper behavior. Um, well, hold off judgment until the end, okay? Uh, for now, just know this. Uh, the truth matters. And our children one day, Lord willing, uh, will go off into the world, whether that's college or that's the workforce. One day they will move out of the house and we are sending them into a world that is hostile towards the truth. And we are failing them if we send them in defenseless. And they need to know, and we all need to know what his word says, amen? And we need to know what it looks like in our lives. Okay, so let's open up to... Titus 2, starting right in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that, an op or so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, in the, uh, the 2020 State of Theology Report, which is put on by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, uh, they partnered to survey what Americans believe. Uh, they asked questions to thousands of people about God, about salvation, about ethics, and about the Bible. Uh, in a sense, their goal was to try and get an understanding of uh, uh, the American worldview. They wanted to get an understanding of the convictions that shape our society. So participants were asked uh, to agree with certain statements, and these were some of the results that they had. Okay, when asked, God is perfect and cannot make a mistake, about 50% strongly agreed with that statement. When asked, there is one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, 53% strongly agreed in 19. We're sort of on the fence. When asked, uh, biblical accounts of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate and that this event actually occurred, about 45% strongly agreed with that statement. Now, if we go to the negative, right, if we, if we go to the no, uh, when asked, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths but is not literally true. Uh, 48% agreed with that statement, which, by the way, that number is trending upwards rapidly over the last few years. When asked, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, uh, only 36% disagreed with that statement. And here's what's even more surprising. When considering just U.S. evangelicals, only 66% disagreed, which is saying a third of evangelicals, people who claim to be evangelical Christians, do not believe that Jesus is God. That tells me that there is some widespread uh, confusion in the United States about the Bible's teaching. And not unlike what Titus was dealing with in his time. So this letter from Paul to Titus was intended to offer encouragement and to offer wisdom for Titus in the midst of chaos. And this letter from Paul to Titus uh, was when he was dealing with opposition from these ungodly and unruly members within the churches that he was charged to care for. So he spends the first chapter, which we won't get into today, he spends the first chapter exhorting Titus uh, and instructing him to establish qualified uh, elders in the church in his care. He outlines the qualifications for elders while also condemning the men that were currently causing the problems in his church. Uh, verse 16 in chapter 1 says uh, that these men professed to know God, but they denied him by their works, that they were detestable, dis, uh, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And in verse 10, he called them empty talkers, deceivers, insubordinate. And it's interesting that the Greek word uh, deny here is actually the same one that was used uh, to describe Peter's denial of Christ. So in terms of of the outward appearance of what Titus was dealing with. Uh, these men, they looked like and they talked like Christians do, 
Uh, and they may have even identified today as Orthodox evangelicals. But their works revealed something else. Uh, their actions spoke louder than their empty words. And it's as though they claimed uh, to die with Christ on that cross, but when they were put to the test, they denied them altogether, just like Peter. And so Paul, right off the heels of calling these men out, turns to Titus in chapter 2. Verse 1, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's saying these liars and these evil beasts and these lazy gluttons who profess to know God, they have turned away from the truth. They are unfit for any good work, but you, Titus, you teach what sound doctrine looks like in the lives of believers. You teach what accords or what fits with sound doctrine. And what, what fits with sound doctrine, what does that mean? It means where there is healthy doctrine in one's life, there is a result. In other words, there's fruit. Uh, there is a way of living that fits with or goes with sound doctrine. That's what he's saying here. In other words, there are two things which ought to be inseparable and necessary in a Christian walk. All right, these are scary words. Deeds and doctrine. Deeds and doctrine. And I don't, I don't say that lightly because I understand that people uh, throughout the ages have been hurt deeply by others in the names of right deeds and right doctrine. I say that deeds and doctrines are necessary because we'll also read this morning that good deeds and good doctrine are the results of a good God with good grace. So know right now that every verse that we read this morning is rooted in grace. We can't escape the grace. Even Paul's uh, sharp rebuke of the false teachers in chapter 1 is rooted in grace. Read that in the Chapter 1, verse 13. This testimony is true. In other words, what he's saying about the false teachers is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. And what's the reason? So that they may be sound in the faith. He's not abandoning these false teachers. He's rebuking them so that they may receive the grace of Christ. So good deeds with good doctrine are the result of a good God with good grace. Amen? And so our purpose is in good deeds and good doctrine is to point others to a good dog or good God with good grace. Now, I want to I skip to the end of the sermon for a minute because I think it's important to understand uh, where all of this is going to lead into. Um, you know, I've heard of these weird people who get that brand new book and, and the first thing they do is they open it up and they turn some of the pages and they go to the last chapter of it. Um, lunatics, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, if some of you do that, it's okay. Uh, but some just want to make sure that the story has a happy ending before they invest their time in the book. Um, so let's take a page out of their book, no pun intended, uh, and look at the ending for just a second. Right? What is the reason for Paul giving this list to Titus? Why is he giving this, this long list? So verses 11 to 15, we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So everything in verses 1 through 10 is rooted in the grace of God. Training us to renounce ungodliness. That's one of the purposes. Uh, with the purpose of bringing the good news of salvation to all. Right, so I know I just I gave away the ending. Right? That's where I'm going to get at the very end of this message. So in a sense, that's the message. You got it. Uh, godliness matters, and it's his grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. But we have to be careful because if we focus solely on the grace, we are met with compromise, we are met with doubt, and we are met with abandonment. But if we focus solely on the godliness and forget all about the grace, then we are met with disaster. So we need grace-filled godliness. We need grace-filled godliness, which starts with right doctrine, which leads to right living with the right perspective. Let's look at right doctrine. And there were some encouraging findings, by the way, in that survey. Uh, when asked, learning about theology is for pastors and scholars only, only 15% agreed with that statement. All right, so I'm glad, and I hope that you reject that statement as well, thinking that learning about doctrine and theology is only about for people standing in this pulpit or people interested in teaching, right? Uh, Titus is saying that the fruits of sound doctrine will be evident in not just Titus's life, and not just the preacher's life, but in every believer's life. And so sound doctrine must be known by every believer because there is a universal need for it. It's not just the responsibility of one particular group. Like I've been saying, he addresses older men in verse 2. He addresses older women in verse 3, younger women in verse 4, younger men in verse 6. We are meant to learn doctrine. Doctrine is a necessity for all. Faithful exposition of his teaching through the word is a necessity for all. So verse 1 again. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So Titus is outlining the results of a sound doctrine theology in verses 2 through 10. And when I worked as the uh, assistant director for a camp um, over in western Maine, uh, one of the activities we did with our summer camp counselors during our training week was a, uh, a build a counselor program. So the director and I, we would come in, usually be after dinner, late at night, they'd be hungry, give them some ice cream or something. Uh, uh, we'd come in with this outline of a person, just a blank outline, kind of like one of those, those chalk drawings that you see on the ground and those mystery novels. Uh, and it would represent the perfect camp counselor. Um, so we challenged the young staff with that drawing to think of qualities that describe who they consider the best counselor that they've ever experienced to be. Um, so they'd write things like uh, engaging, right? uh, compassionate, silly, uh, confident, and willing to be goofy, and they would, just, they would fill in this picture of a perfect counselor. And at the end, they'd have this list of qualities and attributes that together form who they think is their ideal camp counselor. Make sense? And so, of course, uh, we would turn it around on them. And uh, we tell them that each and every camper that walks through that door is expecting a counselor just like that. And we owe it to those kids to be the best counselor that they can think of. And so we had set a benchmark for our staff by doing that, something to look back on in the middle of a long summer to either confirm that they're doing a good job and that they're keeping on the right path or to guide them back onto the mission. We taught them what goes with or what fits with being a camp counselor. Uh, and so that's what Titus is doing here. He doesn't have that chalk drawing, uh, but he's saying this is what goes with sound doctrine and this is what it looks like in your life. 
And I think that might be why I like the NASB translation of that. It says, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And you get this image of this, um, this puzzle that you see behind me with each piece fitting together perfectly, incomplete without the other. So we have, we have doctrine, and that goes right here. And then next to that, we can squeeze in uh, deeds. And then right next to that is the results of those deeds, and all of this together is necessary for that complete picture. Now, let me be clear, though, because the main point of this text is not strictly about any one of these instructions. We have a whole long list. Uh, like our build a counselor was not about any one of those particular attributes, but rather it should serve as a confirmation. It should serve as a confirmation that our lives are reflecting the words that we proclaim to be true in this book. Now, he's also saying there is such a thing as sound doctrine. That sound doctrine exists and it's not relative. Uh, and it's available, and it's teaching. And let me say that there are many people uh, who are smarter than I am, uh, who know the Bible inside and, out, or inside and out and love the Lord deeply, uh, and they disagree with me on some of these issues. I am not saying that every single preacher who disagrees with me on something is a false teacher. Don't get me wrong on that. I think we use that term way too uh, flippantly, false teacher. Uh, but even though we may disagree on how often to have communion, or we may disagree even on uh, what baptism looks like, if it's in a lake or if it's in a pool uh, or if it's up front here, right? Uh, or the end times or something else. We all agree on the core doctrinal truths of the gospel. There can be no wavering on that. That's what he's saying. But the enemy is crafty. And like in Titus's day, the world is filled with false teachers. They are. And they're devoting themselves to myths and to uh, compelling us to turn away from the truth. But actions speak loudly, he's saying. And right doctrine must come with right living. And so we turn to the, the practical instructions that uh, Paul gives Titus. Godliness 101. Uh, and this list is by no means comprehensive, so it's not a checklist of pride for the believer. He's not saying older men should just print this off and go, all right, sober-minded, check uh, dignified, check. Self-control, check. All right, I'm looking pretty good. No, he, he's not saying that. Uh, if we can check those boxes off, that's great news, right? Uh, and hopefully it serves as an opportunity to praise God, uh, and you can start looking for the fruits outside of yourselves uh, and how this grace is affecting those around you. And these may have been specific issues that Titus was dealing with in the church. It doesn't explicitly say that, but given the issues in his church, it will make sense for, Gal or for Paul to want to be specific with these instructions. But regardless, he's saying that every believer, or every behavior rather, listed should still be considered as a fitting response to the grace of the gospel in your life. And so we get to verse 2, where he says, Older men, some of you are starting to shift in your seat now like it's my turn. <laughs> Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So there it is. I'm not going to tell you who's an older man and who's not an older man. I'll let you figure that out yourself. But, um, the term dignified comes from a Greek word that means being uh, so sensible or so seriously considered in one's behavior that honor just naturally comes. It's not something that you have to search or reach for. It just naturally comes. So men, is that true of you? Is that true in your conduct? Is that true at work? Is that what people in public would say about you? 
Are you dignified in the home? Are you dignified uh, on social media? Does honor naturally come to you? That's the question that we should be asking ourselves here. And dignified has another important meaning behind it. Uh, to be considered dignified by someone implies that there is a community behind you that considers you like that. It means that there must be an involvement in other people's lives. This is not done in isolation, he's saying. So much so uh, that the people can actually see how you respond to something when something goes wrong uh, in a way that shows you to be dignified. And some commentators actually say at the end of this, this verse, you see that the faith, love, perseverance uh, that we see at the end is actually the root for self-control, for dignity, and for sober-mindedness. So in other words, he's saying if you are sound in faith, if you are sound in love, and if you are sound in perseverance, through it will flow dignity. Through it will flow sense, and through it will flow a clear mind, uh, which will all be evident to those around you. So be honest. Are you mentally checking those boxes off in your head right now? But my brothers, okay, my advice to you, if you struggle to say with the clear conscience that you are considered dignified or that you are considered sober-minded, uh, commit yourselves to the word of truth. Understand what it's saying. That's the whole point of this chapter. Commit yourselves to the word of truth and understand what it's saying. I'm going to tell you, men, be a nun. What does that mean? <laughs> Look at Psalm 119, 105 to 112. The words of none. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. And this, what a picture of faith and love and perseverance that we see in none. Rooted in the word. So men, let these be something that you would say. Let these be words that you would say. Be a nun. And we get to verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Now notice that first word right there in the verse, likewise. So just as Titus is to instruct the older men to live in accordance with right doctrine, now he needs to instruct uh, the women to live in accordance with right doctrine as well. So older women are called to live uh, godly examples, uh, just as the older men are. Uh, both examples rooted in sound doctrine, but Paul lists some very specific attributes for the women here. And let's look at that. So he says reverent and behavior. In other words, behavior of a holy woman, which links back to verse 1 when he says behavior that's in line with the gospel truth. So what hinders that reverent behavior? We should be asking, what hinders a holy woman, does Paul say? Well, Paul focuses on two specific sins to pay particular attention to. He says, not slanderers and not slaves to much wine. And we could spend a, a lot of time going into detail about what both of those mean, but what's important is that they both stem from a lack of self-control, is what he's saying. 
lack of control of the tongue, or uh, excessive self-indulgence. Uh, and you already see this theme that we just saw with the older men. We see that theme, older men and women, of Paul really honing in on self-control and sober-mindedness. And so really, what's, what's the aim here for Paul and Titus? Why is self-control and sound doctrine important for older women in particular? He's saying that because they are called to teach the younger women. Again, we see this model, just like the men, we see this model of a community engagement. This is not done in isolation. Verse 4 and 5. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Men cannot be considered dignified in isolation. Women cannot teach other women in isolation. Older, sensible women are called to teach younger women, is what this is saying. And I admit uh, and confess just for a minute that I kind of wanted to skip over these verses. <laughs> um, you know, Chris, last week he mentioned uh, this growing deconstructionism movement in the United States. And in our culture uh, and in our day, these verses have been used by those denying doctrine to claim all sorts of things, to claim that Paul is a misogynist. Uh, and therefore, not all texts are actually breathed out by God and profitable for reproof or for teaching, for correction, and for training in righteousness, as 2 Timothy says. He says they say that Paul hates and subjugates women. And these verses have been for many where a compromise in doctrine leads to an abandonment altogether in the faith. And so I'm not taking this lightly. Uh, and you know why your youth pastor is preaching this text? Because I, I admit that seems a little odd, right? Because when our kids uh, graduate high school, which they will, Lord willing, leave the nest and they face challenges in the real world, they cannot have afforded to skip over every verse that appears uncomfortable at first glance. Because our world is going to tell them that truth is relative and doctrine is opinion. And that faith is whatever you want it to be. And so what sort of youth pastor would I be if I preached only the easy parts, right? So, these verses accord with sound doctrine, so it's our duty to read these verses, isn't it? And if our first instinct when we touch on uncomfortable words in Scripture is to bury it or ignore it, uh, then we're not living the life that we're called to. So don't bury, this is my challenge to all of you, don't bury or ignore places in Scripture that appear tough at first glance. If you have questions... That's good. Talk about it. Do not stuff that in the back of your brain and then go off to college and forget about it. Tackle it head on. So we're going to do that. We're going to tackle this head on. Amen? There is an assumption of marriage here. So let me just get that right out of the way. Right? Younger women need to learn from older women that he's saying to love husbands, love children, be pure. In other words, be chaste outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage. Be workers at home. Submission to husbands all assume a husband. Now, is that saying that every woman is called to marriage? Hopefully you all know that answer. No, of course that is not what he's saying. But it is saying that there is great value in marriage. Titus 1.11, if we go back to that, shows us that false teachers in Crete uh, were upsetting whole families by their teaching. Uh, and again, these household instructions probably needed some special emphasis for the audience that Paul was writing to which is maybe why it was focused on marriage. But these verses also show us that there is a great blessing uh, and a great advantage 
to having women who have experience in marriage, have experience in bringing up children, and have experience in church communicate those responsibilities of the faith to those with less experience. Now, I know my wife and I, we take great value from the wisdom of mothers older than us. I can't tell you, uh, well, new parents especially know what it's like. You know, I can't tell you what it was like in the first few months of Sammy's life uh, when we were just constantly texting our older siblings saying, is this normal? You know, how do we get him to drink? Why is this poop green? What is going on here? Uh, so... And by the way, if any mothers have tips on raising a two-year-old, please see me after this. <laughs> We're trying to turn the word no into a yes, and it's not going so well. Um, so, but let's look at that term, right? Working at home. Uh, but we know from Proverbs 31 that the biblical model for womanhood, which uh, is outlined there in Proverbs, considers a field and buys it, verse 16 says. And that the biblical model of womanhood uh, shows a woman selling linen garments, and sashes to the merchant. She earns an income for her family even, and many of her activities take her outside the home. But we also know uh, in chapter 1 that Cretans were lazy gluttons. Those are Paul's words, not mine. And so this is certainly, like every other instruction in chapter 2, a rebuke of the model given to the young women from the false teachers. But there is a duty at the home that requires work. Uh, and this wouldn't actually be the first time that Paul rebuked laziness in general at the home. Uh, and in 1 Timothy 5, 13, he uh, addresses lazy young widows. So this is not the first time that Paul has talked about this. And the Greek phrase literally says that young women should be taught to be home workers. So remember the context of behavior in church communities. That's what we're looking at. Nothing's done in isolation. Everything is done in church communities both older men and older women, uh, the emphasis is not just on the location of a wife's work. That's not what he's saying. The emphasis is on a productivity and the normal responsibilities of a wife. And in fact, the word kind, right after this, probably applies to a wife's relationship uh, with her family. Uh, so Paul writes uh, far more on this in Ephesians 5, on husband and wife relationships. Uh, and Titus 2 is not primarily about that. But submission, that's the word that we're getting to. It's the word I, I know. I see some people shaking their hands. Uh, submission for any Christian, any Christian, is not an optional item. It's a calling. We are all, everyone in this room, called to give ourselves up and submit in one way or another. Amen? And Paul does give special instruction for women and what submission for women looks like in their lives. But both Ephesians and Titus are clear that submission is not required from women to men. That's not what he's saying. The wife is not to submit to every single man that she meets, but to one man, her own husband. And we're, we're so quick to have an emotional response to a statement like that. Um, but that is what it says. And, and this subject, I know, is worthy of a sermon series in and of itself, uh, it's been preached on in this pulpit multiple times, uh, and Lord willing, we'll hear it again. Uh, and if right doctrine is as important as I've been saying it is, we need to explain what it means in the context. And maybe because Paul has elaborated on it in more detail in other letters, he's, just, he's a lot more brief about it in this text. Uh, John Piper, in his book, The Momentary Marriage, 
explains six things that biblical submission is not. And I think that might be helpful to understand what he's saying. And he bases that off of 1 Peter 3. He says that submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. You can nod on that one. Submission does not mean leaving your brains or your will at the wedding altar. Submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change your husband. Submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. It must not mean that. Submission does not mean that a wife gets her personal, spiritual strength primarily through her husband. Submission does not mean that a wife is to act out of fear. Submission is not about suppression. It is about expression. A voluntary, full expression of her gifts in supporting her husband and the spiritual leadership of the home. There is no sense of compelling. There is no sense of coercing, even though, and mark this, that would have fit with the society at the time. That would have fit with the patriarchal context of the Greco-Roman world in the first century. But that's not what he's saying. Instead, he writes for wives to voluntarily submit. It is an option. It is a choice. And, and we see a picture, at least I do, I see a picture of a church filled, I'm looking at it right now, filled with incredible talents and filled with gifts and arranged in a way to support Christ's purpose. And so Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying a wife filled with incredible talent and filled with incredible gifts uh, arranges it in a way to support the spiritual purpose of her husband, which should be first and foremost to glorify God with a love that he is willing to die for his wife. That is no light calling. But that brings us to the purpose of all of this. Why are older women called to be reverent? Why are they called to teach younger women who are called to be kind and self-controlled? The end of verse 5 says that. So that the word of God may not be reviled. So that the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, there is a higher concern to our behavior than our reputation or ourselves. There is a higher concern to our behavior than our reputation or ourselves. And the wonderful truth is that a marriage lived out uh, according to the word is a powerful tool for the gospel. And so, sisters, my advice to you, if you struggle with the clear conscience that you are uh, considered reverent in behavior or self-controlled or kind, commit yourselves to the word of truth. Understand what it's saying. And I, I ask men to look like a nun. Um, you don't get a cool name, but look at Proverbs. Right? Read Proverbs 31 this week. Understand what the word teaches through Proverbs 31 because right doctrine leads to right living. In verse 6, Paul turns the attention to the young men now. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So as older women are called to teach younger women through their deeds, Titus is called to be an example to young men. And these instructions for young men are short. Uh, they are to be self-controlled. Now notice he's made that clear for every single group he's talked to, self-control. Um, I don't know why they're short, but have you ever given complex instructions to a young man? Um, <laughs> Haley's looking at me like, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
the best way for Titus to teach younger men is for him to live it out himself for everyone. So he says, yes, tell them to be self-controlled, but you better show them what it looks like. Verses 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. In other words, he is saying to be doers. He cannot merely teach faithfully. He must live faithfully, and that is a challenge for all of us. Because right doctrine must lead to right living. And why? End of verse 8. So that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So in other words, there is a higher concern to our behavior than our reputation. But our reputation serves as a tool to evangelize. Our reputation serves as a tool to evangelize. So when right doctrine is seen in tandem with right living, there is no opportunity for the enemy to criticize the grace of God. Notice the word us. That word shouldn't surprise you, uh, as both men and women are called to serve in community and not isolation, as I've been clear. Uh, and because our Christian walk is not like that in isolation, if Titus failed to faithfully live out his calling, Paul is saying that that would have shamed Paul as well. And if those young men failed to live out their calling, that shames Titus. And if Titus is shamed, that shames Paul. And it's easy to see the shame of others and to write it off as a fluke in the system, isn't it? We might say, oh, they don't really represent Christ. Or they don't really represent Christianity. But our walk is not meant to be in isolation. So their shame is ours, and our shame is theirs because we represent one God together. Which is why we need community. We need community because right living must be in community. Um, Paul is building up Titus, who is building up the men and the women in his church who are building up other men and other women in their church, and it's our job to continue that teaching. So that, when a brother or a sister is close to misrepresenting, when the enemy is ready to pounce, we're ready to remind them of the grace of God and the truth in his word. It says his word renders the false teachers speechless. It silences them. And we need each other to be reminded of those words. Verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is another text that has been and will be used against us. And for generations, this verse uh, was used sinfully. It was used to justify the brutal and horrific slave trade. Um, so let's be clear. Paul is not condoning slavery in these verses. But slavery was a reality in the Greco-Roman civilization, and in many parts of the world today it still is. And yes, the notion of slavery in Paul's time uh, was different than the American slave trade. Uh, and Paul actually refers to himself in verse 1 using that same word for bondservant, for slave. But that does also include those in miserable conditions. So I, I just I want to be careful not to sugarcoat the conditions in which some of the original audience uh, of the letter may have been living in. Okay, but Paul is not condoning slavery, but he is saying nobody, get this, nobody is excluded from representing Christ as a believer. The gospel is offered to men 
to women, to young, to old, to slave, to free. And so what's Paul's advice for the bondservant, for the slave, for the man who is all too familiar with prison? Be countercultural. Be countercultural. Uh, the slaves that he was addressing um, in Crete, uh, the, the, the idea of them, uh, the Cretan slaves were really, they were known to steal. They were known to argue and they were known to slander their masters. That was their reputation. And so he's saying that the world expects a certain behavior from you. Silence them with your actions. Christians are accused of inciting rebellion. Christians threaten the stability of society as we know it, which were common lies about the early church. Silence the critics with your behavior. Be well-pleasing. Not argumentative. Don't steal. Be faithful in your work. Adorn the doctrine of God. Adorn the doctrine of God. What does that mean? To adorn something is to show it off. Make it appealing. You know what good are these shoes? Gift from my wife. Uh, What good are these shoes if I don't wear them? I can own these shoes, and I can claim that uh, these shoes are mine, but if I leave them at home, they serve no purpose. And doctrine is not meant to be left at home, he's saying. It's not a pair of uh, bean slippers that I wear around the house. You want to talk about countercultural actions? Show off the gospel. Uh, Make it the most important thing in your life. That's what he is saying here. Talk about role reversal as well. Uh, the slave here is responsible for the master's eternal destiny. That's not what was to be expected. The slave here has the promised reward, and the master is dependent on him for it. That's not normal. That's not what people would write. And no, you may not be a slave, um, but this whole chapter is clear on one thing, that there are people in your life that you are called to serve, right? There are people in your life that you are called to serve, and when the world expects you to defy authority, and to worship yourself, we need to know that we have a mission that takes precedence. Precedence to even ourselves. So brothers and sisters, my advice to you, if you struggle to adorn the doctrine of God, if you're unsure if you're considered reverent in behavior or self-controlled or kind, commit yourselves to the word of truth. Understand what it's saying because we need a right perspective. We need a right perspective. Do you remember the ending I gave away? Okay, we're back there now. Uh, Verses 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And there's that really important word to start off verse 11, for. In other words, this is the reason for everything that I've said. So why did I just read off that laundry list of expectations for the believer? Why is sound doctrine important? Hopefully we know that now. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Talk about countercultural. Uh, this was groundbreaking. This is groundbreaking. The grace of God for all peoples. The grace for all. Now, that's not, that's not proof of universalism. Again, that's not what I'm saying. It's not saying that God's grace guarantees that every person born will be saved. But this is saying that salvation is given to all people groups. Old men, old women, young men, young women, Jews, Gentile, rich, poor. When we keep the right perspective, we keep the perspective of grace for all. And we recognize that no pleasure of this world, no food, no drink, no joy, not even our own independence is worth sacrificing the grace of God which brings salvation to anyone who believes. Nothing else matters, he's saying. It all falls by the wayside. So when we recognize that truth, we recognize that truth not just for ourselves, but for everyone. And so our lives become a mission. You can recognize the doctrine that defines it, but if you don't recognize the grace as the source, you're not going to last. Because godliness cannot be separated from grace. Get that. Godliness cannot be separated from grace. Graceless godliness is doomed to fail. If you focus solely on the list, right, that's for the danger. Don't focus solely on the list. Because if you focus solely on that list that I just read and forget about the grace, you're not going to last. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved, not by lists, through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So you cannot adorn the doctrine of God without also adorning his grace. Don't mix that up. Verse 12 says that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. That grace teaches us to repent when we fail. Grace teaches us to live self-controlled lives. It teaches us to be upright and godly, and grace, God's grace enables and produces all of these virtues. Today, it's possible. Today, things can change. That's what he's saying in the present age. Hope is not lost. But if you're sitting here today, and you, just, you know that you are a long way off from where you should be, you, just, you went, went through that list and said that I don't relate to any of this. And I'm willing to bet, by the way, that there are more Christians in your life than you realize who are feeling that way. It's probably not just you. Remember that nobody achieves an ounce of godliness apart from his grace. You cannot do it on your own. So what makes you think you're going to be any different? Know that there is grace. When it says it teaches us, this is a lifelong lesson that we're learning. So if you're not there yet, know that there is grace. It doesn't happen overnight. A grace-filled perspective recognizes that we are able to live godly lives now while knowing that perfection will one day come. Read those last couple of verses. Waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And so brothers and sisters, in closing, my advice to you, if you struggle to keep a right perspective, if you struggle to believe that his grace is even working in your life, to be zealous for good works, commit yourselves to what? To the word of truth.
understand what it's saying. Grace-filled godliness comes from right doctrine, which leads to a right living with a right perspective. Now, next week, uh, we'll continue in Titus. I want to spend a little bit more time in 11 to 15 uh, and continue into chapter 3. And just because the teacher is away in Mexico, I hear my mom say, uh, Jeff won't give homework. Uh, just because the teacher's away in Mexico doesn't mean that Mr. Culpitz can't assign homework. So uh, read ahead, Titus chapter 3. Uh, and I'm going to add even more homework on top of that. I know you ever get that substitute teacher that just like it gives you way more than you expected? Um, just like it's not even their job. Why are they doing that? Um, so read ch- uh, Titus chapter 3. And I also I want to throw in there, there's a lot more wisdom in Psalm 119 than none. Uh, so read Psalm 119 as well. I know you can do it. Uh, let me give you the same exhortation that Paul gives Titus in verse 15 as we close. Declare these things that we read. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Young, old, man, woman, slave, free. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, uh, we need your grace. Lord, I confess that as I read that list, it's, just, it's, it's so easy to read it and, and know that we are so far off. There are so many times that I fail in my life, and maybe I, just, I, just, I see that I'm not self-controlled in some moments, and I say, Lord, why? Lord, I know I cannot do it on my own. None of us can do it on our own, and so we pray for your grace to wash over all of us. Lord, we pray that each and every day we would walk closer to you, and we would walk more in step with what your word says. I pray that we would take this list seriously as a benchmark for where doctrine should lead us, or knowing that we can't achieve any of it on our own, knowing that we need you to achieve this, Lord. So would you give us grace-filled godliness? Would you give us right doctrine, lead us into right living, and give us the right perspective? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.